I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. As we record this episode in early March 2020, Australia has just come out of a terrible summer of unprecedented bushfires. According to the Australia Institute, more than half of all Australians have been directly affected by the bushfire crisis, including millions suffering actual health effects. This obviously includes young children and their families, as well as educators and early childhood services. Entire communities will be dealing with this summer for years to come. This episode, Lisa and I discuss what working with young children now means as we face an ongoing climate emergency that will affect the children we work with long into the future. So, Lisa, I think this was kind of first cab off our, on on first cab off the rank in terms of topics for episodes pretty early on, wasn't it? I think we were texting or emailing or something saying, yeah. It, in the middle of it all. <laughs> in the middle of it all saying, I think we really needed to, to tackle this topic. I think we've got it. We, we, look, we, we haven't sort of got a special guest who, you know, is an expert on these issues with us. This will be a kind of classic banter uh, sort of episode, I think, about yeah, a few so of... Yeah, so feel free to tune out if you don't like banter. Who would not like banter except, you know, <laughs> occasional people? But what I thought we might do is let's start kind of with the most recent specific event. So, you know, the, the summer we've just had, and I think talking about that recent summer in particular before we maybe broaden that out um, and you know maybe talk from our experience about people we talked with in the sector I might talk a little bit about you know my experience actually working with services during this time but um, we know it was a pretty tough tough time for a lot of communities you know Lisa did you you know have you spoken with some people some of your, your colleagues on social media how what are some of the things you heard that services have actually been dealing with over that's sort of a horrible December and January and look, I suppose before I answer that question, Liam, can I just say it's really um, timely that we're doing it tonight because today is the first day in 241 days when there is no fire in oh. Australia. Oh, my God. That's incredible. So it takes us back to July of last year. I think it's, it's shocking that it's been that long. but Yeah, it does. Yeah, that's incredible. Look, you know, we there was it was interesting because it happened over the period that it did most intensely. I think a lot of services were on holidays. Um, certainly, you know, preschools that I tend to talk a lot to were on holidays during that time. Obviously, not all long daycares were, but I think if it had happened, you know, like if it happened now the impact on education care services would be a lot, um, you know, a lot heavier. But there's been just, you know, like some horrible stories of services that have totally lost their backyards, totally lost, you know, lots of teaching resources that, you know, where the educators and carers and, and um, teachers have been impacted on a personal level through loss of houses and etc so yeah it's pretty universal the impact on everyone and education care isn't you know not exempt from that absolutely i think that survey or the the research from the australia institute um kind of surprised me i don't know why it surprised but that that you know idea that more than half of australians were directly affected by 
this crisis. And I think it what it sort of uh, drilled home for me is there's kind of the the specific effects of people that were mainly mainly uh, maybe dealing with you know actual emergencies in their communities, but then. As you said, you know, uh, staff and families who were dealing with, um, you know, uh, family members who were who were doing particular things or were threatened nearby by bushfires and had to respond in a particular way, it does feel like, and you know, having you know uh, lived in Australia for a, for a very long time, that you know these these summers are always a bit fraught and there's always the risk of bushfires. Liam, and, you're not that old. I'm not that old, but <laughs> I haven't lived in Australia for all my childhood. But the you know I, I was here in Canberra during the 2003. You know, Black Saturday bushfires, and yeah. and they were they were pretty terrible. I think for me, the difference, and I, I want to come back and talk a bit about my experience um, working alongside educators and services. What what felt different about this um, period was it was just kind of relentless. So the, the you know the the Black Saturday bushfires in uh, in Canberra in two thousand and three, and I know we've had other. Um, appalling, you know, sort of incidents. Um, I can't remember the, the name that was given to it, but the one in Victoria, uh, you know, a few years ago. Those kind of felt like these one-off big horrible events that the community rallied behind. The, you know, this December and January, and probably look, it's even stretching back before then, it just felt like this relentless assault of sort of, you know, the world turning against us. So I think the, the flow-on effects of just people dealing with this level of emergency and heightened states for such a long period of time can't be underestimated. And then to move on to whether it's serious or not, but the yeah the coronavirus is, it, it I think for a lot of people it's just been, um yeah like emergency after emergency after emergency. Yeah, so I, I might talk through because one of the things. I'm almost regretting I didn't do it now, but I, I almost just recorded myself early in January thinking about um, a couple of particularly bad days we had here in Canberra. The first thing I should point out is, you know, Canberra, we were really lucky. We didn't have, we weren't directly, um, we didn't directly suffer any major damage due to bushfires. We had a couple of fires that got close, uh, but we, they were managed to, to uh, you know, be, be controlled and then <laughs> as of today, extinguished, which is great. Um, well, the, the the main issue we've, we suffered in Canberra, so again, uh, what, what I should say is this isn't me directly, you know, comparing the experience that we had here with, you know, communities and services that, you know, were facing, you know, the, the loss of their entire, you know, buildings and, and you know, that really risks to their life. But I guess I can only talk from my own personal experience. Um, this was a real, this was, you know, the worst summer I've experienced both, you know, personally and as a professional working in early education. I kind of want to talk through that with, with you, Lisa, and recording yeah. this and sending it out to the listeners. But um, one of the, the, the things we faced in Canberra were just uh, ongoing and relentless air quality issues. So we had... So how did you deal with that? Uh, I How don't. Did your I, services deal with yeah, that? I don't know if we. I don't know if I have dealt with it yet. At least I think this is this this episode might be some therapy. So um, <laughs> I'm just I'm stretched out on a couch, listeners. If that's if that's <laughs> helpful for you to picture. But um, so what we had because Canberra sort of exists in this sort of um, uh, we we right along these wind. Um, the, uh, what am I trying to say? I, I I don't know much about how wind works in Australia, but we we tend to when there's nearby fires, as, no matter as compared to in England, where you do yeah. know how wind works. <laughs> we just have to deal with rain and flooding. It's such it's so much nicer. But wherever the fires were, we tended to get the wind blasted blasting them right over. So we had uh, really bad air quality throughout December and January, but then there were particular spikes uh, in particularly in early January. So. The organisation I work for, which runs five early childhood centres, for four days at the start of January, we actually had to close our centres because the air quality was so bad, uh, which was unprecedented. So that uh, we've never in my... Uh, and how did you make that decision, Liam, to do that? 
It's fascinating. Well, it, it goes into one of the other challenges of dealing with this issue was there was no real specific guidance on what to do and when. The um, ACT Health, which had air quality monitoring, only had a 24-hour average of the sort of the rating of the air quality that's now changed to an hourly one due to community demand but it was really hard to make decisions based on anything that was kind of you know well it's reached this level so we have to close it was more around that it had built up for so long and that we were we were trying to open centers we were going in and seeing that gee it's it's just too bad you walk into centers and you could literally see you know haze at the end of a corridor which was just you know, nothing I'd ever experienced before at this level. We had bad days of air quality, very, very, you know, singular days prior to, but this was, you know, endless days of um, really poor quality. And to, to the point where Canberra, I think in two days, had the worst air quality on record in the world. Um, but so we had these sort of four days where we were closing centres, which meant, you know, we had people at home emailing families, letting them know. I have to say, you know, family reaction was actually pretty positive in terms of, um why we were closing and that we were taking children's health and safety really seriously. The challenge we had is actually when we chose to reopen, families were really distressed and and, and, and wanting to know what on what basis we made that decision and we had to be sort of using the data we had available. But interestingly, when I look back on it now, the there were kind of there's kind of two things that I've really I think I'm still processing. One was I think just the relentless, I think I've mentioned this a couple of times already because it is my sort of key theme, I think, the relentless nature of, of this of, of this uh, situation because it meant that even on days where the air quality wasn't uh, wasn't as bad that we needed to close centres, it meant that children were still kept inside along with educators. So we had yeah. really in December and January, I think, I think we counted this up in early February, I think there were five days, five working days where children were allowed to be outside, all the rest... We had children kept inside. For anyone who's listening, who's worked with young children, knows that is not an ideal situation. It means that you was that you know there was it was, it was pretty fraught. It was difficult for educators to be managing, you know, young children who wanted to be outside, moving around and, and engaging in that you know that physical activity outside. You can you can do what you can to move things inside, but you know it was it was difficult walking into centres and seeing educators work really really hard. But it was that they were you know we had chaotic classrooms. We had you know children that were you know just clearly unhappy with being stuck inside all day and that just many parents choose not to send their children because of that like were your attendances down yeah in january particularly and i want to i actually want to come back to that point because that's when we're going to talk about i think the policy response because we had the the flow on effects of many of these challenges was surprising and new and and really difficult so i want to put a pin in that i'm going to come back to that lisa because i think i want to talk about how this how this interplays with the subsidy and stuff um so there was this, it was this really difficult time where, you know, edu- educators, you know, often, you know, in Australia over these periods of time, it gets a little bit quieter. Children are outside more because the weather's, it's, it's hot, but you have children in sunscreen, you have the shaded areas and you're spending a lot of your time outside. And you know, I remember as a, as an educator myself in pretty much in, you know, from, you know, October to whenever, you're often starting the day outside. You think, well, why are we, you know, you, it's 7.30, it's still, you know, it's already pretty warm and. Uh, it's a lovely day. You would be you would be going outside, but it was just not you know outdoors. Or it became a bit of a, a foreign country in Canberra for a little while, and then 
there was something about you know the the heightened state of needing to close centres of regularly communicating with families, and you know by the way, not charging for those days as well, which has an impact. You know, as a not for profit community based service, we ethically couldn't charge for those days, but we still have to pay staff, we still have to do all those different kinds of things. It has it's had a significant financial impact on our organisation. I know on every organisation that that chose to take those steps. Mm-hmm. But what was, I think, my what surprised me maybe about my reaction, particularly, you know, when we sort of closed for that, you know, those four days, was that just how unprecedented this is and this feeling that, you know, is this the new normal? Are we going to have to become kind of experts? You know, I'm an early childhood teacher and, um, you know, rant on about policy and advocacy. I sort of, in January, along with my colleagues, we had to become sort of like, you know, emergency experts. We had to be reading their quality data. We had to be making decisions on a often, you know, three times a day about can we open tomorrow? Are we able to remain open for the rest of the day? What are our um, policies around how we respond to these particular things? how many days did you actually close? So we were closed for four days. And they were consecutive or? No, I think we had two in a row and then I think we opened for uh, the rest of that week and then two the following week. I'd have to go back. But... And was it Monday and Tuesday or? Yeah, well, I think the first day we were due to come back was, I think the Monday was public holiday. So I think we were due to reopen on the Tuesday and we couldn't open. It, it was so yep. bad. And, okay. and 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 personally, so sitting there, because the, the other thing that sort of happened to me personally as well is that, you know, my uh, wife and two young children had left to go to Sydney. The, the, the air quality was so bad and we couldn't, we couldn't go outside and do things. Everyone was getting kind of ratty and annoyed with each other. So, you know, as, as people with young families will know, you know, it's, it's really strange when, you know, I think they were away for about two weeks. I had, you know, I was sort of by myself as well for, <laughs> for that period Aww. of time. And sort of checker, yeah, well, this sounds like the soft Why story. Why did but... you send them to Sydney though? Well, like, it was, yeah. the air quality was better here. My, that we, the, you know, there's a, Claire's family, uh, you know, have um, places they could stay there and they sort of went from there to Tari and wherever they could basically find good air quality. It was better than here, honestly. You couldn't right. leave the house in Canberra. Okay. Um, I, I am, when I, like you put into our show notes for today that um, it exceeded safety standards on 56 days in Canberra over December, January and February. And I tried to come up with an equivalent for Sydney because it felt as someone who was in Sydney for at least half of it as if it was like I regularly had smoke in the corridors of my house. And all I could see is that... um, over 150 for an air quality index is considered very poor and over 200 is hazardous. And some days we were up to, in the worst days uh, was in Western Sydney, it was, we were up to 2,593. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, so it was it was bad here too. I wouldn't have been sending anyone <laughs> I think I think the sense we got is that, there were while there were bad days in Sydney, it wasn't every day where you just you, you couldn't you uh, literally couldn't leave the house. No, I think people in <laughs> Sydney would disagree with that. There was yeah, you know, there was at least in December there was at least a run of two or yeah. three weeks where it was just disgusting. Yeah, so I think what kind of it was, I, I had this moment where we were sort of you know we had centres so. You know, there's a bit of a rhythm and a routine to opening for the start of the year. You have it's often quiet. You, you're doing orientation. You have less numbers of staff because people are using that time to take annual leave. Um, we had, you know, people I've worked with for ages who were sending texts, you know, from 
you know, places like, you know, Bermagui and where people were literally being evacuated to beaches. It was, it was a really dramatic and, um, sort of emotionally draining start to the year but what it kind of got me thinking is and i think is the the overall theme of tonight's episode is you know this is these events are likely to happen more and more often as we know the climate is changing as we know um this is you know what kind of living through climate change looks like um given you know we work with young children is this just kind of become the new normal where we're during summers we we spend more time thinking about our emergency procedures We, we we have you know we will, you know, I want. I, want to, I think we're going to talk a bit about about this maybe towards the end, which is how do we prepare for this again? But you know, policies we've never had to think about, which is you know, what's our policy position on when we close centres because the air quality is so bad that we can't we can't ensure children's health and safety. I think it was this moment where I was kind of going, God, this is not, this is not, you know, the 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 work that I remember doing, you know, 15 years ago when I first started working in the early education sector, this feels really different. And it feels like we're really at a point now where things are changing in terms of the work we do with young children because they will be inheriting, you know, the world that we're kind of leaving for them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Yeah. So, Look, I don't know what, there's no sort of question or anything in there, but do you, I mean, Lisa, what, you know, as someone who works with a lot of organisations on, you know, particularly, you know, uh, policies and their approaches to thing, is that, you know, or was that your sense in terms of your connections with the sector? Did this feel, you know, really different? Did this feel like a bit of a changing moment? My my sense is we'll remember this summer for for a long, long time. It did, but it was only in specific parts of the country, like, in you know, I think in New South Wales and Canberra we were, you know, um, and obviously places like Kangaroo Valley, there was much more of an understanding of it than places like you know Queensland who had its fires early in the season and then you know didn't really have a, that same amount of impact in January. Or Victoria, who, of course, had their really bad fires a few years ago and didn't have nearly as bad, um, you know, this year. So I think it, yeah, I think it it depended upon the part of Australia. But, yes, I do think it'll be a big one. And I've, you know, like I've long thought that most services risk assessment policies and evacuation, you know, and lockdown and lockout policies are not good. And I've noticed a bit of a blip in my work where people are asking me to look at them. And I know the New South Wales Department of Education have, um, are running free seminars for services about how to prepare for emergencies and um, you know, how to redo those policies and plans for evacuation if you need them. And it's, I think, you know, it's one of those things that, like it's boring stuff, you know, thinking of all hmm. the things that could possibly befall your service, you know, but um, for a lot of people, that kind of preparation that they've done over the past few years about when to get out, what to pack, you know, etc., really did help them survive these ones. Well, you start to get to the point with, you know, your, your centre risk, you know, assessment where you're trying to work out, 
you know, what might befall you. It almost becomes comical. So in Canberra, we had obviously the smoke and then the bushfires and then literally centres being trashed by hail and <laughs> rainstorms. <laughs> it was... Floods. <laughs> oh, floods. It was, you know, you, you, you kind of laugh because it just seems so ridiculous. But maybe let's take a step back now. I want to think a bit about the sort of the overall policy response from a government perspective because I think the situation became so dire that we actually had some movement from the Department of Education on a couple of things so the there is some suggest there's uh, some uh, exemptions from the activity test for their families in bushfire declared areas um, there was some additional support sort of provided um, to you know to services to try and you know basically get around the childcare subsidy system but what for me that sort of highlights is that there are it's a really challenging when you're in a market model to be responding in this community based way and it sort of highlights i think the cognitive dissonance that exists in governments where they expect early childhood centers to behave in particular ways that support the community which is correct and i actually think that's the way they do think but but there's a huge challenge there when it's kind of in the market based model so the example i want to give here which is the point i wanted to come back to before one of the unexpected challenges we faced is that so we closed you know centers on the first day we were open so we obviously had a number of families that were enrolled to start on that day oh now if the family we're trying to rot we're such rotters so <laughs> if the family doesn't attend on the first day they're not eligible for the childcare subsidy we also had families ending that week so families that couldn't attend on the last day. Now, we were a nice organisation, so we basically changed all enrolments to ensure that no family would be worse off. But, you know, that was additional work we had to put in from an administrative perspective. And I'm sure that, you know, that may not have been the case in every organisation. So, you know, Lisa, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the market-based model, but is this, you know, is this a particular, you know, issue that's faced when, there's this ridiculous sort of overlay of this, you know, funding system while services are trying to respond in a sort of community-based and positive way. Yeah, look, obviously it does um, because, you know, uh, people need to, you know, like for-profit services need to be viable, not-for-profit services need to be viable. But I also think that it, um, it affects how government responds to us. So we really noticed in New South Wales the difference between the responses to schools um, and the responses to community, uh, uh, you know, to early childhood services. So schools got quite clear information, especially um, we had the double thing here on the day before schools go back and preschools went back of the coronavirus had just hit and whereas schools got really clear information about whether they were to enrol um uh you know children who had just come back from the affected province in china early childhood services didn't get that or got that a lot later and the you know, one of the reasons for that is because they control the schools. Government controls schools, government runs schools, so therefore they have to give them really clear advice, whereas they look at us as independent market-operated, you know, independent businesses, so really it comes down to your own business decision, whereas a lot of services look to the department to give us really clear um advice and what was happening on some things i 
think it was more coronavirus than fires was that the federal government through you know through the department of education about childcare subsidy etc were giving contradictory information than the new south wales government um, through the through our department of education so it was like which one of these do we follow you know which one is Who's, you know, like do we follow the people that are giving us the money or do we follow the ones that have got the public health responsibility for our state? So, yeah, I think there's lots of ways that the market model kind of, you know, impacts on the information we get. I think the big thing you've highlighted there for me is this, and we definitely felt this, felt this in Canberra during the air quality issues, was that there was very limited guidance from the you know, regulator or from the ACT government around when and if services should close. And because schools weren't operating, they kind of weren't in that position where they were having to do that. But one of the things we were calling for, and we will probably call for prior to next summer, is that, there, that that's a role the, the government should play is not leaving it up to individual services to make particular decisions, particularly when there was really limited data around at the time. But what it meant was that families who felt the need to, who disagreed with particular decisions, um, you know, there wasn't this yeah. sort of really clear guidance. Again, now, it would have been easy if we said, look, ACT Health or the ACT Education Director has put out advice that, you know, that they recommend the services close. Now, they don't want to do that because, as you said, it, they, they feel like it's something that's left to business decisions. They don't want to be on the hook for either, you know, compensation or uh, being, uh, you know, for insurance payouts. But given that this is, you know, early education and it's within the you know, regulated sort of space that services uh, that, you know, the education directorates work in, I think that is something that will need to be considered moving forward as we adapt. But, but Liam, I don't... Yeah, it's not there in the education and care law that that's something that regulatory bodies have to do. No, but, you know, maybe that might be good something for the NQF review. <laughs> might be a bit late now. but <laughs> I can't, I think, Can you really imagine a government saying, oh, yes, we should put more responsibilities on ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, well, the, as, as these events keep happening more and more often, it'll be interesting to see what the you know, what the response is. But um, let's, the next thing I sort of wanted to talk about was, you know, given that we're sort of in a very different world, I think, than we were, you know, even 5, 10, 15 years ago. Um, what's the, if we, if we approach this from an advocacy perspective, which I think this, this podcast always does, um, we've talked in previous episodes about some of the challenges from, uh, for, uh, you know, advocating on behalf of young children where it's seen as, you know, politically touchy issues and for some bizarre reason, you know, climate change and, uh, you know, responding to, you know, actually, you know, maybe caring for the planet still seems to be, for some ridiculous reason, a, a hot topic. Um, what do we think are the positives and negatives of service, you know, services being political on this issue, Lisa? Look, there's positives and negatives, but before we say that, we need to think about the fact that it's young children's education that is being disrupted by climate change, whether it's, you know, for a few days' closure of their centres or them having to, you know, like go to another state to get better air quality. 
it's their education and that just seems to me like to be such a major thing to be looking at living in a country where the response of you know nine tenths of the politicians is you know oh no the bushfires aren't you know, caused by climate change or, you know, we can't talk about climate change during a bushfire emergency. How can you not be furious at that? How can you not just be so angry that children are the ones that are missing out, children are the ones that are being impacted on this the most, even apart from the fact that they're the ones that are going to have to clean up the mess left by the current, you know, powers that be? How can you look at that and not say, yes, this is another area that we as educators have to be advocates on. Absolutely. But I think one of the things um, that I know, so yes, you're right. So when we talked about, you know, that people are actually sort of denying that these, you know, bushfires were linked to climate change, despite, you know, a lot of, um, you know, the Bureau of Meteorology and, you know, Australian, you know, CSIRO being very clear that, you know, that you can never point to a specific, you know, uh, you know, this caused, you know, this, but it's clear that the climate is changing, which leads to, you know, drier, um, more droughts and more um, risk, you know, that basically these things get worse and worse and worse, is that there's a lot of misinformation out there. So a lot of conspiracy theories, you know, the big one that seemed to happen during the bushfires was, you know, that they were mostly just caught being caused by arsonists, um, despite the relatively small number of cases. Um, one of the things we talked a lot about last year, Lisa, uh, and for those who have maybe only recently started with the podcast, we discussed this again in the wrap-up episode in 2019, was that um, there's a lot of misinformation available, particularly on social media, and we wondered whether you know educators and people working in early education may be particularly susceptible to misinformation. So is there a concern? I put this dot point here specifically for you, Lisa, because I, think, I thought you might enjoy talking about this one, but are you, are you concerned that you know maybe educators aren't fully engaged with the, you know the the dangers of climate change, or that they are maybe susceptible to, to misinformation about what's happening here. Look, I think I think we're in an interesting situation actually. Whereas I think that a lot of educators, because of the NQF, are aware of the need to do sustainability incentives, right? So that the NQF has put you know, ecological things on the consciousness of a whole group of um, workers that maybe didn't have it before. But, yes, we saw in the, um, you know, in the election that people were really believing what they read in, on social media, etc. I think that actually worked a bit in, you know, in favour of getting people to understand the emergency that was happening because some of the images that were being shared on social media were so searing and so extreme. Like how could you not forget that child, you know, um, steering the boat away, you know, from that beach in Victoria? How could you not look at the photos of um, children, you know, cuddled in huddles with their parents on beaches? Yeah, yeah. So I think so. You, your, your, you, you feel that. I think the overwhelmingly, the the sort of approach we saw in in, in national media and on social media was very much that this was you know pretty appalling and devastating, and that most people were accepting that this was linked to climate change. 
Yeah, I think I think they did, but that doesn't mean that they won't. Yeah, and that the, they won't also hear another version of it that it had nothing to do with climate change. And in fact, on some of the educator pages, they were talking a lot more about things like land clearing. Mm. Yes, the Greens hate caused the bushfires because they didn't allow yes land clearing, despite the fact that a that's not true, and b uh, the one of the impacts on climate change is l- less time for states to actually engage in backburning and land clearing because the summers are starting earlier, the bushfires are starting earlier, and that means there's now less time in the middle of the year when it's cooler to actually engage in these in these backburning. Pl- Places. I'm now a climate oh, emergency the green, expert. The Greens had stopped it anyway. Liam, yeah. That's right, yes. For some bizarre reason, they, they want the fires. Who knows? I think one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up in particular is there was a news article uh, from last month, which is that there are some activists, right-wing activist groups targeting primary schools uh, with you know their, their own version of information about you know how climate change isn't real and coal's okay. Um I, you, look, you would hope that that sort of thing would not reach down to early education, but um, I just worry that I, I hope that you know educators are hearing you know the positive messages, but also particularly that they have a role, a positive role to play in supporting uh, children's understanding of this. This might be a good segue to talk about. So I think for educators who are maybe nervous about engaging with this, either on a political but even just on a you know a curriculum level. So so engaging with issues of climate change and um you know and the the climate crisis with young children uh, because it seems like everything now can be turned into you know a, a storm in a social media teacup. I thought it might be worth just having a look at some of the things that the early years learning framework and the national quality standards um, tell us. I think before I start, I want to point out that just because there's specific links within there, you know, there are reasons to do this that are beyond well because the EYLF told me so or because the NQF told me so. That you know, there's an ethical obligation exactly as you said before, Lisa, that children will be inheriting this world and children are directly affected now by what's happening. So regardless of the fact that I'm going to be listing some things here that I think educators can think about, uh, there's a there's a moral obligation, there's an ethical obligation. And for people who engage with issues of social justice, for people who have things in their philosophies like, um, you know, uh, acknowledging the rights of children, you know, children have a, have a right to grow up on a livable planet. So, you know, let's oh, make sure. Oh, Liam, now you're just going too far. I know, I'm a crazy lefty madman. Yeah. But, um, but uh, you know, having a look, so the uh, outcome two of the early years learning framework, children are connected with and contribute to their world. Um, I mean, the world needs to be there for them to be connected with and contributing to. But, um, but this, you know, gets to that idea that children actually have a role to play as participants in the world. They're not passive observers. They don't, there's not a point where they turn, you know, six or seven or eight or something and then suddenly they can be part of the world they're a part of it now and they're, they're in these communities um, but there's a particular um, sub point around there in terms of how children can engage with this outcome which is children become socially responsible and show respect for their environment so the idea that you know this is in our curriculum that this, these are things we can be teaching children um, one of the uh, practices of the EYLF is learning environments and in that section it talks about educators fostering an appreciation of the natural environment, developing environmental awareness and providing a platform for ongoing environmental education. Like These are pretty – I was actually in, in sort of doing the research for tonight, I was surprised how pretty direct some of these were. I kind of thought they would be a little vaguer like that. 
developing environmental awareness and providing a platform for ongoing environmental education. Like this is pretty direct stuff. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot here that gives educators jumping off points. Um, just a couple of other ones, you know, holistic approaches and other practice under the EYLF. Educators foster children's capacity to understand and respect the natural environment and the interdependence between people, plants, animals and land. I mean, that's really talking about, you know, this complex system we have around us that we're impacting as humans. And then obviously the element 3.2.3 of the national quality standard is called environmental and being environmentally responsible the service cares for the environment and supports children to become environmentally responsible you know there is no shortage of if we're just looking at those key documents and we're just looking at the really obvious headline things there's there's a lot that's pushing educators and services to do this work there sure is but i think it yeah you know, i think that some people like, think of it more as a way to get through the NQS or something. You know, oh, yeah, we've got to do the sustainability thing rather than actually think about it as our curriculum is telling us that this is an important thing that we have to teach children. And I, th I think, yeah, some people, I had a, an amazing experience at the weekend at the Saman and Salatari Inspire conference where I used their virtual reality headsets and was able to participate in a session where I felt like I was present at um, uh, Auckland Kindergarten, uh, Forest Kindergarten in um, is it in Scotland now? My, my geographical knowledge is bad here, but Claire Warden's kindergarten. And through those virtual reality headsets, you saw children at their own level, you were down at the level of the children, engaging in the forest, which was like a 360 or at least a 180 view of the forest where you could turn your head and see more of it. And watching children engage with their environment was just it was I left the session in tears because I just thought that's what we're actually taking away from children you know we're going to be taking away that kind of ability to really understand the environment in which they live in if we continue to do this kind of shit to our environment that we're doing and I think that one of the obligations that the NQS and the YLF put on educators is that they teach children to appreciate and to love their environment. And some people do that really well in Australian centres and others don't. I was speaking to a service the other day who is literally on the edge of a national park, you know, like one block and they're on the, in the national park, if that. And they said, no, we don't do excursions in our centre. Now, there was complex reasons why, yeah. but I just went, how can you not? I read somewhere today, um, it might have been The Guardian, that within 40 years something like 50% of the beaches will be gone because of, you know, rising sea levels, wow. et cetera. Well, I think, so, yeah. How do you not take children to the beach on excursions now. If there's a beach near, get out there <laughs> get out and to do the it. beach. <laughs> beach preschool. Well, even yeah, you know, in the most recent, in you know, the most recent summer, twenty percent of Australia's 
forest burned 5.8 million hectares of forest were burned in New South Wales and Victoria it's you know the these arguments I think around the uh, protection of our environment become less academic when you know you're actually looking at the loss of these things that have stood for millions um well you know maybe not millions but you know thousands of years in 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 our country and I think you know, absolutely, Lisa. What this always comes down to for me is I think sometimes we fall victim to or where we, we're worried about the reaction is if, if we treat children as being able to engage in these issues. So some of it, I think, comes from wanting to protect children. So there's this idea that, well, you know, the, these issues are too are too big and children can become depressed. And, you know, all those, particularly, I think, for older children, we're, talk, we're thinking about, you know, how people like Greta Thunberg are being treated, that she's, you know, she's losing her childhood and she's, um, you know, being brainwashed or she's, you know, she shouldn't be speaking about these issues. You know, what, at what age does it become acceptable for, for, you know, children to have a say in this world? Um, that they're they're a part of, um, but the this idea that children are civic participants, they're not being prepared to be part of society. They're part of society now. They have ideas, and we should always be making sure we're engaging with children in meaningful ways. That we're talking about their local community, their local environment, in ways that make sense and are meaningful to them. But we need to be really clear. When, we need to be really clear that we're not. Um, overly protecting children from the you know the world they live in they they're they're part of the world now they're being affected by this crisis right now so the idea that we don't involve them in thinking about um what that means and and how we can you know you know uh, be, be stewards of the you know of the, of the world we're on today is just you know that 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 to me is just not okay and we need to be using those prompts i think from the earliest learning framework in the nqs to go well what are meaningful ways we can you know talk with children about these issues and then actions we can take in our community yeah and liam it's like you know like always we need to say you know remember curriculum in its wider sense like should you how many days a week should you be serving meat-free meals you know that's got a direct impact on climate change when you serve those meat-free meals are you using that as a learning opportunity to talk to children about why this particular meal doesn't have meat in it you know we need to think about it for things like you know when we go off to our Kmart and buy our very you know um, uh, uh, pretty furniture what forest did the wood what was the impact on the forest where the wood came from to make that piece of furniture that we now have in our centre? You know, we need to think about, you know, our excursions. We need to think about things like, you know, even outside of curriculum that impact on our centre. Is is the super fund where your superannuation is invested in, is that, you know, uh, is it contributing to the use of fossil fuels or has it got a really good climate change policy? You know, there's a million things that both in terms of curriculum but also in terms of wider centre operations that we need to be looking at and thinking about. Yeah, taking a really holistic view of sustainability and, and, and environmental protection yeah. I think is a great way to start. Um I think we, we've bantered for quite a while, Lisa, but I think we, we want to wrap up with a couple of points. Given that we know, I think, if this, isn't, if this isn't the new normal, we will be dealing with these kind of issues for the foreseeable future. So we're kind of you know, going into 
uh, the cool will probably will probably face floods or something in the next little while. But no, looking ahead, to, there's another summer ahead, and it may be you know not as bad as this one. It may be as bad, or maybe even worse. What you know, someone who's particularly a bit of a policy nerd and poli- thinking about policies, procedures, risk assessments. What do you recommend services be doing at this time when we're not facing the fires, but knowing that? When I say the sector was unprepared, I think Australia was unprepared. This isn't, you know, and and, you know, we didn't have, like I said, we didn't have, you know, a a air quality policy that told us when we should close down. We will certainly have one (laughs) by, by, you know, November now because that's just the new world we live in. What were the things you would be recommending to services think about in terms of preparing for the next summer? Look, one of the things that um, a lot of our regulatory Organizer, regulatory bodies are pushing anyway is that people's risk assessments for their centres just aren't adequate at the moment. And it really means like, you know, sitting down and doing a risk assessment, which is completely, you know, like what is what would happen if a herd of elephants suddenly, you know, came through the centre? You know, like <laughs> what would happen if... Yeah, what's the likelihood of that? Oh, probably very low. What would the impact of that be? Very, very high. Is there an early education service at Taronga Zoo? They, that probably is on their risk assessment. No, but, you know, like the, we need to do those really holistic risk assessments that look at things that possibly we hadn't thought of were possible before. Like you would not have, if I'd said to you, Liam, you need to put air quality into your risk assessment. You would have laughed at me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you know, now we know that air quality, we know that fires, we know that what's going to happen. You know, like just looking at coronavirus again. What's going to happen if half of your staff can't come in because they've had to quarantine themselves? You know what? How are you yeah. going to manage that? Yeah. Well, this is another and- this is another issue with the market based model. So, if early education services need to close for you know one to two months, which is you know unlikely but not in nowhere near impossible, like what does that actually mean for services? Or they- even if parents are being told to work from home and they're going, well, if I'm at home, I may as well have my child you know home with me. Then what does that do to services that need every dollar that comes through the door? Yeah, yeah. These are going to be tricky questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, ooh, yep. So I think there's some great advice there, at least in terms of those risk assessments. I know we will be spending, you know, the next little while really thinking about what the risks of these, you know, these summers are now, which are just, I think, are just very different and more acute than they were, you know, ten, fifteen but, years Liam, ago. You know what? You're not going to. You think you will now because it's fresh in your mind. It's in my calendar, Lisa. It's it's, it's, yeah, it's all fine. In another month or so, there's going to be another issue that you're going to be worried about. You know, it's really easy with risk and with emergencies and with you know climate change to think there's other issues that are more important. Well, know? I'm making this commitment to the listeners. I will report back on the podcast. Okay. I promise you. Ooh. I promise you. <laughs> we, 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 we will be doing it. Um, what I thought we might wrap up um, the episode with, unless there was anything else you wanted to add, Lisa. Uh, look, I just wanted to um, yeah, talk about the actual impact. Like some of our centres are dealing with the impact of on children who have lost homes, who have, you know, lost pets, who have lost um, backyards to the fires. 
And I just really wanted to put a plug in for a resource that was um, funded by the federal government after the um, Black Friday fires um, in Victoria and it was done by the Early Trauma and Grief Centre from the Department of um, uh, from the Australian National University and it's just got some really interesting and good things about what you should consider with um, uh, young children and their parents because remember it's not just the child that might be having long-term impacts from fires, it might be the parents as well. And as a child care service, you know, as an education and care service, you um, have to deal with the whole family. And if parents aren't travelling well, then their children won't be travelling well either. So I'd just have a look at that one. Of all the ones that I've seen, and there's a massive stuff around if you know, if you haven't seen it, you know, ECA have put it out, SEAL have put it out. You can also just Google, you know, <clears throat> wildfires and very young children. Get a lot of resources through that. Um, uh, 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 what's the um, the Beyond Blue? What what are oh, they? Bu Bu Yeah, have also put out stuff, but I, I particularly like this ANU one. Because it reminds us that young children don't necessarily show their distress the same way that other people do. And remember that a lot of young children, even if they weren't directly exposed to fires, were exposed to images of fires on TV. Absolutely. And look, we'll, we'll include that link in the show notes as well as a couple of other resources that I think were pretty well publicised um, during that time. And the other thing, what made you, what, what I sort of thought of while you were talking about that, Lisa, is the sort of, um, you know, the double impact on particular families as we know that during these events, the children and families that are um, disproportionately likely to be, you know, affected extra are the ones already vulnerable or already, um, you know, experiencing disadvantage. We know that's how these things work, that... Um, they're always affected even worse by these kind of things. So those kind of resources from a trauma uh, perspective, I think, are particularly important. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for that therapy session, Lisa. I'm feeling <laughs> I'm feeling a lot better, and I have some homework. I'm going to be reporting back to you on the podcast in a few months around what we've uh, what, what we've what we've worked on. <laughs> and you know what? One of the things that always worries me about this, Liam, is that you'll go away and do your homework, and I'm sure your homework will be excellent. But the centre next to you has to go and do their own homework. Wouldn't it be nice if a government department bought out a draft policy on air quality control for everyone to do? Oh, In Lisa. the old days when we had professional support coordinators, they would have been running training on this. They would have been, you know, running, um, uh, you know, preparing resources for people. Yeah, Lisa. Funded to do that. That now. sounds suspiciously like, you know, funded professional development, and, you know, we can't have that. Oh, yeah, we can't. Speaking of which, the, I, I noticed today that Samanus and Slattery, and sorry, I've mentioned them twice in this podcast, but they came out. <laughs> They're with, not sponsoring the podcast, we should say. <laughs> no, they um, uh, are running a session about trauma and bushfires and what to do. So if you're interested in that, head over to their website. And we'll include a link to that as well. Yes. Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening and we'll be we'll uh, chat to you again in a fortnight's time. 
and stay safe and um, you know, don't use too many air masks because we might need them coming ahead in the future. <laughs> You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jarzar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.